it's great to stand on a roof in Baghdad and be live reporting about, you know, 240 people who have been killed. But like, it's, it's kind of like fast food of journalism, right? News is the fast food of journalism. It's important to do it. And like, I really enjoyed doing it for a really long period of time until I didn't. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited about this podcast. We have another installment of our podcast focusing on DuPont Award winners today. And it's a really good conversation about doing good journalism now. Right, because the models are changing and evolving, and people are trying to figure it out. And I think Natalia Antalava has come up with a good working model. She has. Natalia Antalava is one of the co-founders of Coda Story, and we honored them in January with a DuPont Award for their incredible reporting on the anti-LGBT movement in Russia. It's systemic. I mean, it's coming from the top down from the Duma. I mean, there are lawmakers who pursued this. It's a very dangerous time to be in the LGBTQ community in Russia at a time when, in the rest of the world, Gay marriage has become legal in the United States. You know, there have been huge advances made for that community in many industrialized countries. In Russia, by comparison, that is not the case. And I think it's almost, it's kind of shocking in terms of the, the things that are on the books legally. And did we mention that she was in partnership with Reveal? We haven't mentioned that, but indeed they are partnering with the Center for Investigative Reporting, has an incredible podcast, which many listeners may know, called Reveal. And so this is part of this evolving model, which is that you do a lot of reporting, you figure some things out, and then you bring it to a partner who can help you fund it and can help you get it out there. And that's what they did. Yeah. So she was here in January for the ceremony to get her DuPont, and she came from halfway around the world. So it was a great opportunity to have her also speak to students. And Professor Keith Gesson, our own Keith Gesson, sat down with her. And let's take a listen. It's an edited version of the conversation, as always. And as a production note, we recorded this conversation in a classroom at the journalism school instead of in the lecture hall without our usual stellar audio capabilities. So it's a little rough in some places. And at the beginning of this conversation, they're talking about how she made the transition from a long time stint at the BBC into this new chapter. So how did you like the BBC? Um, I loved it for for years and years until I didn't. I, what I loved about it was, you know, I had I, I was very lucky to have like a series of jobs um, where I was given a lot of freedom. I caught the end of the golden age when there was both the appetite for foreign stories in the BBC, uh, but also the money to send you places like Tajik Afghan border and you know Turkmenistan and you know a public hanging in Iran and like. You lucky lot. I didn't go to journalism school, so it was a great, great training. Like everything I learned about journalism, I learned from from the BBC, um, and it was it was great fun. But I think um, at some point you hit, you know, in 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 an ironic way, sort of. Um, better you do in the organization and kind of more mainstream stories you start doing, more limited you become in kind of the the madness that you can pull off and sort of the interesting stories that you can do. So towards the end, um, you know, I 
I think uh, what I didn't like uh, was not so much the BBC, but was being, be, being part of a news cycle um, and not being able to mm, do stories that I felt really mattered and not being able to uh, focus on things and explain things and have a platform to explain things that, um, um, you know, that were, that were, in my view, the real story. Um, it's great to kind of stand um, on a roof in Baghdad and be live reporting about, you know, 240 people who have been killed. But like once you do it for a while, you also realize, well, yeah, here I am doing another live about like another 100 people who have been killed. And it, it, it's kind of like fast food of journalism, right? News mm -hmm. is the fast food of journalism. It's important to do it. It's important to have people who do it. And you, like, I definitely really enjoyed doing it for a really long period of time. And then until I didn't. So I decided I wanted to do something more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's, that brings us to Coda's story. But I mean, was that, it must have been a very difficult decision. It was a, it was a gradual decision. I remember very clearly kind of the inception, not of the idea of Coda, because the idea is definitely not only mine, but of the urge to kind of figure something else out. Like what, so if this journalism I think isn't working, so what can be working? And I was, in, I was in Yemen. I was covering the um, uprising in Yemen. And I was flying out. I spent six weeks in the capital in Sana'a, uh, sort of posing as a tourist, because they were not allowing any journalists in. It was all kind of turbulent times in, in Sana'a, and a lot was happening. Uh, and I remember realizing very clearly that that was it. The story was definitely not over. It was very, very far from being over. And I knew that the story would just fall off from the editorial agenda, from the headlines. Not because they didn't care in London, but because if you don't have that person pushing the story from, from the ground, and with so many things happening in the world, the editor's attention just moves elsewhere, and it's just really hard to kind of keep that focus on the story. So that's what got me thinking, surely there's another way of, of doing it differently. Um, and I came back, I was living in Delhi at the time, and I started a conversation with um, some of the colleagues that you know I respected and trusted. And basically, it was for about two years, it was a conversation. We were just like trying to figure out like how can you do something? How can you cover these big events in, in a more meaningful, more continuous way? Um, and the result of that conversation at the end was, was CODA, which um, we are a nonprofit, and it actually the idea behind it is super simple. We take a team of journalists and we put it on one story for an extended period of time, and we cover it from many different angles, and we make sure that you know it's it's all with a with a kind of a very with a real focus on like high quality storytelling. So that was a model that we wanted to try. What we realized was that journalists has always been designed for disposable platforms. It was, you know, always a newsletter, a newspaper that you read and you throw out, or it's a TV piece that you watch and it disappears, right? And that was once the internet came around, that was definitely something that a lot of publications, a lot of media just replicated online. But by replicating it, kind of created this like bottomless pit for updates. You know, mm -hmm. so what we wanted to do is instead of kind of take those stories out and kind of create a platform that irons them out and like puts them in context and creates kind of a big picture thing. Uh, is, is there a problem with when you're saying we're going to take a really kind of long view of a situation? Is there mm -hmm. a problem knowing when that long view yes. is over? Uh -huh. It's impossible. Yes. <laughs> yes. This, so when, uh, when do you say, okay, so, we have to publish? Well, we publish as we go along. Uh -huh. 
so the editorial model works like this, um, and this is more or less. I mean, it's been it's it's been changing slightly. For example, when we first set up, we thought we would be very geographically focused. We thought we would do Syria or Ukraine. You know, many of us have sort of conflict reporting backgrounds, and um, that's where I was. I, we did wanted to do a pilot on on Afghanistan. But what happened then uh, was that we ended up doing a pilot. You know, we also we, we also thought, oh, someone will come along and give us a million dollars, and we'll just do it. And no one came along and gave us a million dollars. So we realized we had to do this pilot, like with like no money, uh, which meant like we couldn't send people to Afghanistan or Ukraine or Syria. So we picked the issue of gay rights in Russia because we felt it was a a really good topic because it was sort of quite narrow, but at the same time it was a prism into a much larger, larger issue, larger crisis. So what we wanted to do is not just like tell the stories of the Kremlin's war on gays, but also explain its implications and explain its causes and try to understand. So we crowdfunded for it and had a, like a tiny grant. So that we did for like just three months, and then we started. So disinformation crisis and the migration crisis were kind of span out of that, and that's when we started publishing. The LGBT was really the pilot. So you know, with the migration, it was quite where, where do you end it? Uh, that was quite simple because we ran out of money, so we had to end it. But the disinformation, we thought we'd do it for a year, and then we would go into something else. But we've done it for a year, and the story is still going on and we have an audience that wants that story so we decided to carry on so that our whole idea in the beginning was we do it six to nine months and that's definitely not how it's going to work out mm -hmm. but at some point and if you think about it a lot of things in journalism are very arbitrary anyway you know i mean 3,000 word limit is arbitrary, right? <laughs> so so at some point like we end one edition so lgbt really led us. Disinformation was one of the themes that we covered in the LGBT crisis and that really like has become an addition of its own. And you know you told me that you moved from London to Tbilisi to cut down on your expenses a little bit. Um, from Delhi actually, from, from Delhi. Delhi. Okay. The last, my last BBC gig was in Delhi. So, um, Is yeah. Tbilisi cheaper than Delhi? Oh yes, God, oh, yes. Great, Tbilisi, yes. everybody. Um, so, and I mean, how is... And uh, much nice. Much, okay. No offense to people who love Delhi, but... It's okay, you're a patriot. And well, so what, what is the, what's your kind of funding situation? At? We are, um, so we are a non-profit, as I said. So we are uh, mostly at the moment we're foundation funded. So our funders are the usual foundations that fund, uh, you know, the journalist organizations. Uh, um, but we also have a revenue stream because quite early on we started experimenting a lot with animation, kind of mixing animation and art with journalism, and we did a lot of um, sort of stories. And that has taken off as a thing of its own, and we have commissions to do stories. So we just worked with the BBC, for example, on a story of a Syrian refugee from Raqqa mm -hmm. and telling his story through this like four-minute animation. Um, we are, and we're doing a lot of experimental storytelling in general. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a graphic novel right now, an app for a graphic novel, which is, you know, quite exciting. So, and that is clearly becoming through so this the production and the video side of things are, are bringing in the money. 
And when so I know the story that won a DuPont, it was a partnership with Reveal. Does that bring in some revenue? Or yes, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. That's the kind of thing that also brings in a little bit of revenue as well. Mm -hmm. We partnered up with the Reveal to uh, on the basis of that reporting. So we did. We spent four months reporting on LGBT crisis for our pilot for Coda, our proof of concept, really. And once we had all the reporting, we went to Reveal and said, look, we think this is going to make a great one-hour radio show. And that's, you know, that's the one that won the DuPont in the end. So just to remind you, Natalia Antalaba is talking about Russia's new scapegoats. And that's the uh, documentary that just won a DuPont in January. The judges called it a, quote, bracing fascinating and disturbing look at the Russian anti-LGBTQ movement. We're going to hear an excerpt now that they played during their conversation. And in the excerpt, we're going to hear reporter Amy McKinnon's interview with Vitaly Milonov, who's a high-ranking politician from St. Petersburg. And he's one of the architects of Russia's recent anti-gay legislation. I get the signal that Milonov is ready, and I'm shown to his office. Now, before I continue, I just want to give a quick heads up. Milonov is known for making controversial statements, so I'm expecting to hear some of the slurs and hate speech that he is infamous for. He shifts uncomfortably in his chair and scarcely makes eye contact during our interview. Um, why did you feel that it was necessary to introduce such a bill? Uh, we have to face uh, moral dangers, moral uh, factors of uh, present world like uh, homosexual propaganda, which is disgusting, immoral uh, disease of a modern anti-Christian society. Milonov is a devoutly religious man. The walls of his room are lined with religious icons and a black flag which reads, orthodoxy or death hangs behind his desk. There is no nationwide monitoring of hate crimes committed against LGBT people in Russia. Local and international rights groups piece together what they can and both have reported a sharp increase in homophobic and transphobic violence since the gay propaganda law was passed. Human Rights Watch blames this violence on the anti-gay rhetoric coming from politicians and state media. I ask Milanov what he makes of this. Uh, Human Rights Watch is a cheap piece of <laughs> I'm sorry for my French. And uh, uh, we have no... Uh, serious figures of uh, personal of violence against homosexuals. There is uh, quite a big number of uh, criminal cases uh, that are connected with the homosexuals because many homosexuals at the same time they love little kids. Do you have any evidence of that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Where? It's, uh, it's just a statistics. Actually, Milanov, the, the man uh, interviewed here, is um, now a deputy in the Russian Duma. His career has... He's, he's doing very well, um, sadly. Um, so this was a, this was an interview done by Amy McKinnon, who was like we, there were two reporters on the piece, myself and Amy, and it's actually a wonderful illustration of the um, you know why it's really great to um, intern for a startup uh, because Amy was our intern. She was a she was an Alpha Fellow in Moscow, 
and she was introduced to me and she wanted me to put her in touch with the BBC bureau in Moscow, which I did. But I also really liked her on the phone and I said, look, if they don't reply, come, you know, come do this internship with us. And we were just starting. And they didn't reply, <laughs> their loss. Um, and Amy circled back to me and we took her on. And she got to work on all sorts of things, including this show for this show for Reveal that won the, won the DuPont. And, and I mean, you know, one of the sort of comp interesting, complicated things that comes up in the, in the piece, in the entire report is, you know, there is uh, a rise in anti-gay violence, right? Um, but it's kind of hard to trace it directly. Um, it's not like Putin is going out, right, and doing the stuff. It's, it's not even like United Russia is, right? Uh, Putin's political party is kind of actively involved in this. Um, and yet it's a kind of propaganda push. Um, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not sort of a direct connection. I mean, you know, in, in the way that sort of a lot of violence, um, you know, that is attributed to Putin is actually sort of vigilante violence, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how, so how did you kind of think about that? You know, it's like if you report some sort of one orthodox, uh, like vigilante group, uh, it's one thing, but if you if you're starting to uh, see the patterns, and if you and that's what that's what very much sort of encodes sort of DNA, right? We're looking for for patterns, and we're looking for kind of the trends that we want we want to discover through individual stories. You know, one of the ways we we got revealed to we kind of intrigued reveal and got them on board was we very early on said to them, look. Putin is not a homophobe himself. Like there is no evidence that Putin himself is homophobic. There are gay members of his, you know, in his government. Um, like he has gay friends. Russia is being horrible to the LGBT community. But like, let's look at why is it horrible? Because that's what really matters, right? That's what's actually helpful for us to understand if we want to understand what's how Russia works. Um, and I think that's what kind of sold them on to, to, to the idea. And one of the most interesting things that we discovered through our reporting, I think, um, was that you know, there is actually a one instance where you can make the, quite a direct link. And that was when um, in 2011, 2011 was the Russian Duma election, also saw some of the biggest protests that Russia has seen in, since the you know, collapse of the Soviet Union on this Balotna Square, and like hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets. Uh, Putin's rating fell to 50%, which is really not very acceptable if you want to, you know, have a 90% popularity. And, um, uh, and the, the Russian government was desperately looking for, you know, a solution to that. And around the same time, uh, one of Putin's uh, orthodox friends brought an, a relic from Athens. Uh, an Orthodox relic, and it was displayed in uh, Christ the Savior's Church in Moscow, and millions came to see it. And from you know, basically the story that we ran argued that that was the eureka moment for the Kremlin. They thought, that, you know, they they saw that kind of oh, Orthodox concern, like family values, mm -hmm. um, and they really kind of focused on that. And if you had, you know, you had that, you also needed the enemy and. You know, the LGBT community became the enemy. Um, so, here's a kind of ticklish question: are, are you worried, given you, know, you guys yourselves are working on sort of the info war situation, right? Um, as you 
I'm sure know, in the U.S. right now, there's a kind of hysteria around yes. Putin, the mastermind of everything that happens across the entire world, including everything that happens in the White House. Um, how do you not get sort of sucked, sucked into, into that? It. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I think we're I think we're really um, very very careful about not getting sucked into it, and I think the format kind of prevents us from being sucked into it. We don't do sort of breaking news because plenty of other people are doing it really well. So we we actually like consciously have to stop ourselves from being reactive, and I think being reactive is part of the problem with this whole like information warfare. That's one thing, and the other thing we don't do any opinion. Um, or if we do, it happens like maybe like like a piece a year, right? From one of the editors. So um, and that also protects us from being the becoming the info warriors. Mm -hmm. Kind of our belief is that in part the solution to this whole like fake news crisis is is in fact not being sucked into it and covering this story. It is a real crisis because it is actually affecting lives of people across the world increasingly. Uh, it's changing the society that we live in. These are the stories that we want to tell. What we don't want to do is do he said, she said journalism. Yeah. It's not very good for clicks, though. <laughs> <laughs> we really want to kind of, we really have a focus on human stories, on um, you know, real people and so on. Um, and then once we started covering this information, we wanted to do another web series, and we kind of like, where, right? like, how do you tell a story of this information through, you know, character-driven reporting? Like, how do you do it? So what we did, our, the, what we came up with, with a, was a, a series called um, that we called the Clash of Narratives, where we take two characters from like completely opposite sides of the spectrum of of two from two different eco chambers basically and we follow them we're a fly on the wall with them throughout some event that is happening in their lives we are now doing five more seasons of clash of narratives in different countries so we're doing uh, we're doing a story of two theater directors in St Petersburg who are both staging the same play but in two different interpretations um, so one is, they're both religious, but one is very like pro-Putin and the other is very anti. Uh, uh, we're doing a st two stories in Ukraine. One is about uh, the Orthodox priest from two, on two sides of the front line, one who stayed with the, who went to the Ukrainian church and one who stayed with the Russia. Okay. And what was the sort of, what was the drama between the two people in Georgia? Like, what was uh, the election. Action? So in uh -huh. Georgia, we had two women. They were both in their early 40s, both hugely charismatic, both kind of activists slash journalists, uh, both owners of uh, TV stations. And uh, one was very pro, like fiercely pro-Western, like uh -huh. libertarian pro-Western, and the other one pro-Russian. Uh, and the backdrop to their story was the election okay. in Georgia. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and and so it was just was it just kind of their reactions to events that were interesting or was it yeah it was uh, you know it was very intimate like we, people like stories about people right um, and we had the key to success of the series is like really good access unless you can you know hang out with them in their home and actually be a fly on the wall mm -hmm. in their lives it doesn't it's not it doesn't work. Um, and I think another thing that is quite compelling about it is that um, it's confusing to watch it because 
um, it, that's at least the feedback that we have because people say, well, you know, she, that one is not the one that I should like, but I kind of like her. Mm-hmm. Like people get confused. Like people listen to both of them and they get confused. And that's not something you can get out of a debate, right? Putting mm-hmm. people at the same um, table right, and debating. Right. Right. How much of your life is visiting foundations and stuff like that? Too much. Oh, too much. Yeah. 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 yeah, quite a lot at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a lot at the moment. But you know, I have a, I have a co-founder, so like we share all of that. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, at some point, we'll move back to like more editorial. Right. But I'm very involved with the video stuff. So, so my because we are actually making money. Making money is good, even for a nonprofit. It's not Making money is very good. Yeah, it's yeah. especially good for a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very, very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, we'll, we won't be relying on grants for much longer. Wishful thinking, but yeah. Thank you very <laughs> thank much. Thank you. No, thank Great. you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Natalia Antalava from Coda Story and Keith Gesson. Before we go, Lisa, I want to remind everyone to check out our newly redesigned website on assignmentpodcast.org. We're very proud of it. We are. We think it looks amazing. It showcases all five seasons of the podcast. It also has news about our upcoming events, like the Film Friday screening series. And when you're there, here's a bonus, Lisa. You can enter for your chance to win one of our fabulous on assignment tote bags. I hear we have two lucky winners already. We do, in fact. Cecilia Boutini, Columbia Journalism student, and from the Wall Street Journal's podcast, John Wardock. So congratulations to you both. And that means that you better hurry up the rest of you and subscribe and register to win one before they're gone because it's turning out to be the fashion accessory of the season. We have some really great conversations coming up. More DuPont winners. More DuPont winners. Uh, Next up is going to be a podcast about podcasters. Right. Podcasting. That's, that's a little bit meta, but a lot, lot of podcasting. Uh, no, we're so fortunate and really looking forward to having Michael Barbaro from the Daily here from the New York Times phenomenal podcast, who's going to be talking to us with Zoe Chase, who's coming back again from This American Life. Right, she appeared on our podcast earlier this season um, here in the studio with us, but uh, this is a panel that she's going to be doing with uh, Daniel Alarcone, our professor, and Barbaro for the students. And we're very excited about it. Yeah, that's going to be great. Then after that, we have author and documentary filmmaker extraordinaire Sebastian Junger, who's going to be coming to talk to students. And he's going to show his film about Syria that also recently just won a DuPont. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. He's an amazing speaker and guy. So that'll be fun. Until then, this episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by... Sarah Wyman, with the assistance of our DuPont fellows Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. And our music is by Dylan Nowick. We'll be back next month with another episode of On Assignment.